Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey you guys, today's episode is brought to you by Litbreaker. Litbreaker is the best way to reach the arts and culture web, the literary web, people who like books, people who like music, people who like art of all kinds. If you want to get whatever you got in front of them, go to litbreaker.com and uh, advertise. It's the easiest and best and most efficient way to get your stuff seen on sites like The Nervous Breakdown, The Rumpus, Full Stop, Large Hearted Boy, uh, Volume 1 Brooklyn, The Believer. There's all sorts of, of uh, places on the web where you can advertise, and it's a one-stop shop at Litbreaker. Do you understand? You go to Litbreaker, you advertise, and you hit everything at once. It's so effective and so smart, and I think you should do it. Go to litbreaker.com for more information. This is an advertising network for people who like books and music and art and other good stuff. Go and advertise on it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jake, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is internet-based. This is one of billions of available content options. How are you today? I'm Brad Listy, sitting here in Los Angeles, California. It's good to be with you. My guest is Lisa Cross-Smith, and she has a debut story collection out. It's called Every Kiss, A War. It's available from Mojave River Press. Very pleased to have Lisa here on the show, and she and I are going to be talking momentarily. Uh, I still have this cold. It's, it's like this chest thing. Anybody else have this? I, can you hear it in my voice? I think it might be good as long as I don't start uh, coughing. It might be good for you know the the uh, the purposes of radio. It makes me sound like I have a little bit more gravitas, doesn't it? A little bit, a uh, little bit more James Earl Jonesy. Now I'm self conscious about it, and I think I'm I'm going to be talking even deeper. I shouldn't, I shouldn't call it to attention. Now I'm going to be thinking about it. Do you see what I've done to myself? Before we begin, I want to read some mail. Uh, thanks to everybody who sends me emails. I appreciate hearing from you. I uh, obviously can't read everything uh, on the show itself, but I do read all the letters that I get, and I try my best to respond. 
this particular letter comes from a listener named Sanford who writes, what's up, Brad? I'm 44, single, never been married. I live in a studio apartment in the country. I own a comfortable knockoff Eames chair, a bed, clothes, laptop, and cookware. I love my Vidalia Chop Wizard. It was the first and will most likely be the last as-seen-on-TV type product I will buy. I have no mortgage. I have $10,000 in savings. I'm on unemployment. Prior to being on unemployment, I worked in higher education as a university and college instructor and administrator. I started listening to your interview several months ago. I listen to an interview every morning while I shower, make breakfast, and eat. I don't have any friends that I hang out with. During the day, I apply for jobs, surf the internet, read, go to the city to walk the neighborhoods while listening to my iPod, go to the city to go to museums, and hike. In the evening, I either watch Netflix or Amazon Prime or read a book from one of the authors that you've interviewed. Sometimes I drink more than is reasonable, sit on my porch, and listen to and watch the wind rustle through the oak trees on the opposite hillside. My sister lives nearby, as do my parents. My sister and I care for our parents as best and as often as we can as they are elderly. They're in their 80s. My parents are on their way out. I love them. They love me. And we're good with life. I'm writing to you to say thank you. Listening to your monologue followed by the author interview every morning makes me feel youthful and that I am a part of something. With your monologues, you are sincere and personable. With the author interviews, you certainly keep the conversation going. What authors share and how authors share with you and your listeners reminds me we are successful and persistence is worthy. Best to you, your wife, your daughter, and Walter, later, Sanford. So, thanks, Sanford. I appreciate the kind words. Uh, I hope your parents are doing okay. And uh, I, I got to say, I hope, you, I hope you find some friends to hang out with. I feel bad about that. Maybe I shouldn't, you know. I don't know too much. But uh, I only say that because I, I, I sort of get it. I think a lot of us are in that boat. Especially the, the older you get. Like why, like, why is it so hard to be social as an adult? You know, like, like I think about my daughter, three years old. She meets another kid for the first time. Uh, it's amazing to watch them interact. Here's what they do. I'll, I'll do a, a demonstration. Here's what they say. Kid number one, do you want to play? Kid number two, yeah. And then they play. And by, the, you know, 10 minutes later, they're hugging and laughing. They're buddies instantly. You want to play. Kids make it easy. So uh, my point is, you know, we need other people. Which, uh, you know, is apropos. I think that's why I named this show Other People, subconsciously anyway. It's very important, especially as you get older. And uh, I'm telling this to you guys, but I could easily be telling it to myself. I think I got to try to be good at building actual friendships and communities with actual human beings. I want to be better at that wherever I live. It's a work in progress. I, uh, I want to foster a sense of connectivity. <laughs> Is that a fool's errand? Should I be trying to foster such things? Are we such a hopelessly diseased species, uh, like at least in our adult form, that it's not even worth it? 
where is a good city in America where this happens regularly and people feel connected to one another and it's easy? Does such a place exist? Am I talking about Narnia? Is Los Angeles like especially weird and disconnected or is it just normal with better weather? This is a recurring theme for me, obviously, for uh, anyone who's listened to this show for any amount of time. So thanks again, Stanford, or Sanford, not Stanford, Sanford. I appreciate the letter. Uh, I wish you well. And if you guys out there listening uh, would like to send word to me and uh, to, you know, let me know what's on your mind. The email address is letters at other PPL.com. That's letters at other PPL.com. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. I guest once again, is Lisa Cross-Smith. Her debut story collection is called Every Kiss of War. It is out there now from Mojave River Press. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Lisa Cross-Smith, and her book once again is called Every Kiss a War. I'm in my bedroom in Louisville, Kentucky. I'm on my bed. So is it Louisville or is it Louisville? Like I kind of I grew up in Indiana, so I, I I've heard it said both ways. I heard a lot of Louisville when I heard you know. I'm, yeah, I mean it is it is Louisville, but I'll say it differently if someone's not from here. Sure. Okay, so you like Louis, it there, Louisville? I do. Yeah, I do. I mean, I really like. I was born and raised here, so I mean, I, I like it a lot. I have horrible, horrible allergies. That's the only thing I'm supposed to move away for my allergies. But you're not. Well, and I'm supposed to move to the desert. But you're not. You're gonna. <laughs> stay, you're gonna stay there. You're gonna. No, I'm saying you've, you've opted to stay there and suffer. Mm, for today, yeah, I talk about it a lot. But I mean, you know, like you, like uh, man. I mean, I don't. I know you're never supposed to ask a woman her age. But if you've been in a place for your whole life and you have roots there, I'm assuming you have family and friends there. Um, yeah, you know, it's it gets hard to leave, and, and there's something to having a you know a good rooted situation. It's, it's true. I mean, I lived in the same house in the same room for 20, 20 years. We never moved at all, my family. And then within three years, I had moved to another house with my parents and then an apartment with my husband and then a house with my husband. So, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know. I'm, I like being where I am. I like staying where I am. But also, my allergies are horrible. If anything would ever get me to move, <laughs> that's so, what it would be. <laughs> so, wait, you lived with your parents until you met your husband, and then did you, like, move out of your parents' house into this, like, cohabitation with your husband once you were married? No, 
I, I met my husband in high school, so I lived with my parents until I got married. And then my husband and I, I moved into his apartment, and we lived in his apartment for a year, and then we bought a house. Okay, so it wasn't one of those things where, like, your dad wouldn't let you cohabit <laughs> until you were properly married. I don't know. It could be that Louisville's kind of the south. It can be old school down there. No, not at all. No, I just got married when I was 21, and then I moved out. I mean, I got married. We got married in my parents' living room, and then the next day I moved into my husband's apartment. So. Oh, my God. So, wait, you got married at 21 in your parents' living room? I did. My dad's a preacher, and we wanted to get married, and I don't like a lot of attention. So I just didn't – I don't know. We we talked about maybe having a wedding, but I just didn't want a bunch of people sitting around looking at me and, and talking to me and, and stuff like that. So we just – I don't know. It wasn't really eloping, but I just didn't want a big. I don't like a big deal made out of things. We didn't want a big deal made out of it. Do you like? You don't it like? It seemed like a big deal. So you don't like a lot of. You don't <laughs> like a lot of eyeballs on you. <laughs> no, I really don't. I feel really terribly uncomfortable being the center of attention. I don't like it at all. You know? Do you? What about readings? Do you like public speaking or anything? Or is that a? I'm okay with it. Like I went to musical. I went to. Um, I use performing arts high school. Like, I, I obviously, I'm fine with performing. I'm fine with talking to some people. I don't mind it at all. But if someone else wants to do it, they can do it. Like, does that make sense? Sure. You know, like, I'm fine with it. I don't mind doing it. If someone's like, hey, Lisa, can you do this? I don't I don't mind doing it, but I'm not the one sitting there being like, oh, I can't wait to go up here and do this. So with readings, I do readings because it's kind of part of the thing, but it's not my most favorite part of the thing. But it's fine. They're fine, too. I do like 10 minutes, and then I'm done. So what you're saying, you're well-adjusted. You can do it if you have to, but you're not seeking out. A, you're not needy for attention. <laughs> not in that way. I'm, I'm really not. Sometimes I guess I, I don't know. I had to, especially when I started writing and put my stuff there, I had to start being more like, you know, I had to start being a little better about, not always letting other people go in front of me or or something like that. It accidentally ended up happening that I would always play the, you know, like the sidekick role, even if I didn't mean to. So then I did have to get a little better about being like, I can do these things. I, okay. What I'm trying to say is I feel like because I don't like the attention and I don't try to get it as much, people think that I can't do things or that I'm dumb or something. <laughs> Like, I had to start being a little better about being like, no, I actually do know how to do this. I just don't want to if someone else wants to. Yeah. yeah I mean, you got to be a little bit more assertive. It's tricky, you know, because I think that yeah. – I think that a lot of writers, you know, part of the reason we uh, are drawn to this line of work is that we, we uh, get to sort of hole ourselves off into a room or whatever away from crowds. <laughs> um, yeah. And, you know, I think that um, – there are some. I mean, there are some writers who have an ability to get. Actually, there are more writers than you would think who have an ability to get up in front of people and sort of perform and entertain. Um, right. But uh, very rarely is that like the primary thing. Some I think some writers actually do really excel like strongly at that. Like maybe even more than they excel at writing. But that's kind of a rare case. Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree with you on that. And assertiveness in that is kind of hard for me because I I, I do try to be careful about the way I come off. I certainly don't want to come off as, you know, pushy or, or trying to whatever. I think there's room for everybody. I really do. But I did have to learn those things, and especially with promoting a book. Like, you know, I'm learning a lot about, you know, if someone's sitting around some other books, it's okay to talk about, you know, my book too. But I'm never just going to walk into a room and be like, I'm here. Like, I'm just not like that. <laughs> right. <laughs> so uh, you mentioned that your dad's a preacher? He is, yeah. What, what, uh, what denomination or... 
he's pretty much Southern Baptist. I mean, he went to the Southern Baptist Seminary, and everybody around here is, not everyone, but everyone who's, there's a, the Southern Baptist Seminary is here. So, I'll, you know, most of the people here involved in churches are Southern Baptist, but so, yeah, that's how I was raised. He's been preaching since I was three, so uh, that's all I know, really. Okay, so, I mean, are you into it still, or is it something that you rebelled against as a teen or anything like that? rebel against it. I love Jesus. I'm a Christian. I identify as a Christian, but even just saying, I mean, automatically people start to assume certain things that aren't necessarily true, you know, the way a lot of people think things go with, if you hear Kentucky and Southern Baptist, but no, I really didn't have a rebellious, not in that way, really. But I no, mean, I think really. in like literary, in like the literary circle, so I think that Somebody who's uh, like openly Christian or like expresses a love of Christ or whatever, like that doesn't necessarily happen very much. I find I think that's sort of unusual. Yeah, I mean it's lo- it's pretty lonely, but you know, it's, I don't know. It, I was always kind of weird in terms of stuff like that. So, so here in Kentucky, I was raised in a predominantly white neighborhood. I mean, there were some black kids there too, but. But I was also, so it's like when I was a teenager, I was the only black kid I knew who listened to Pearl Jam and, and, and stuff like that. So I was always kind of, kind of on the edge there doing, you know what I mean? Like I was always kind of on the edge there, okay with being a little different. I didn't really fit in with the black kids all the way and I didn't really fit in with the white kids all the way. So I was a black girl who listened to Pearl Jam and Garth Brooks and like, so... And I've written an essay about that, like being a black girl who likes country music because I love country music. So with that, it kind of was the same way even with being a Christian like people just sort of assumed it about me since my dad's a preacher so it's like oh well her dad's a preacher so of course she thinks that way so I don't know it kind of gave me a free pass in a weird way if that makes sense to be who I was because it was already kind of weird anyway so I just stayed on the weird side right you were like yeah okay I get it so you like invite it was like envi- yeah. it was like environmentally weird and you were weird anyway so it was like a nice match <laughs> Right, and I, you know, I have, you know, I have found that a lot of people will automatically think it's this unicorn thing that I can write about sex, and I'm a Christian, or you know, I know a couple bad words, and I'm a Christian. You know, I don't know. That's kind of weird to me, but but it, uh, there are more Christians, I think, that maybe just don't talk about it as much because it's pretty loaded. But I, I feel comfortable talking about it. Um, I feel, you know, it's it's all right. Everyone knows that it. it's the first thing I put up there. So the first thing on my website, I'll be like, I love Yeshua. The what what is Yeshua? Oh, that's a Hebrew it's name. It's a Hebrew Jesus. name for Jesus. I, yeah, I, so I was, raised, I was like, raised Catholic. I have no idea about that. Was it, Am I supposed to know that? <laughs> no, no, no. I really didn't. I really didn't know that. I, I didn't know that until a handful of years ago, but I think that it's so beautiful. So I just think Yeshua is such a beautiful word. But um, so I put it on there first. I put it on there first with my my Twitter. I love Jesus. So you know, I, you know, not in a corny kind of way, but that way, if someone's like completely against that kind of stuff, then they, they don't, I'm not trying to sneak it into anything. I'm not trying to pull one over on anybody at all. Right. Well, okay, I get it. And like, so, like in terms of like, because uh, Southern Baptist. I mean, is that like that's not like the speaking in tongues. That's not that kind of thing, is it? No, no. no. That's, pen- I mean, that's Pentecostal. No. That's Pentecostalist. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So, but I mean, like, uh, like Jesus, uh, is he coming back? Like, like rapture stuff like that or no? You know what? There's a lot of different things people believe about that. I don't know a whole lot about that, exactly what people believe. I was raised to 
believe that I was, but not in a not in the freaky way that people joke about. If that makes sense, <laughs> like, I know uh, I keep saying if that makes sense, but yeah, like sucked up know. into the sky. I, it's just like they, once we start to get into like the supernatural, where there's like a beam of light coming out of it, I just tune out. But <laughs> I, you know, <laughs> it can't be happening. Yeah, I, you know, I was always raised to think of it in sort of in sort of just a really natural progression of things. So we believe that God created the world and we believe that God will end it one, one day, whether that's whenever that is. Is God, you know, is God a man? Is God, is God a man? Like what is God? <laughs> I want to get to the bottom of this. I Lisa. Really think, <laughs> you are talking to the wrong girl. <laughs> you know, I really believe that God is spirit. People get so, I, I was reading an argument about that the other day when people were talking about whether it's a man or woman. And then I think when you're talking about that, you're talking about, God, you're making God so small already that, I, you know, I just end up tuning it out because it's so tiny. If you're thinking about him in terms of, if you're thinking about God in terms of man or woman, I, I, I don't know. I don't really even think about stuff like that. So my, my relationship with the, with Christ has always been really normal. It, it's normal. I think people are genuinely surprised that I'm like a, a normal person. Well, you know, there's a lot of crazy religious people. I mean, there's a lot of crazy people. Yeah. Period. There's a lot of crazy people, period. But. <laughs> You know, re- religion religion plus crazy can be a bad combination. Amen. I mean, I agree with you on that one hundred percent. So, yeah. but you know, I think I think too. Like, I mean, because I'm sort of like in this. I like to. I always love to occupy these like you know nebulous middle grounds where uh, I don't have to make any big decisions. But I think that uh, <laughs> I think that yeah. like my feeling is that like okay, I can't do that. I mean, I'm, mentally, I'm not there. But I'm also. Uh, I also recoil a little bit at people who seem like dogmatically atheist, you know, people who are like so stuck. Yeah. Like certainty in any form to me just feels like really uncomfortable. And uh, I, yeah, yeah. I just like to be like, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. That, that's sort of my, yeah. that's my strong stance. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, seriously, and I do, I do not argue with people at all. Like that doesn't interest me at all. Yeah, like, you, you, know, know, you don't seem, you don't seem argumentative. You seem very, uh, <laughs> you seem very sunny and cheerful. Oh, well, you're very sweet, but I really, there's no, I mean, why in the world would I argue about it? Like, it doesn't, never even crosses my mind. I think everyone should believe what they want to believe, man. I'm, everybody do what they want, man. Well, but you know, but there's no, <laughs> but there's, there's no, uh, there's no, like, proselytizing. Your dad's a preacher, so, like, you didn't have to go out and, like, try to convert people or anything like that? No, not at all. My dad was really, my dad was and is still a preacher in Austin, but he used to preach in the prisons. He preaches almost every Sunday now, and he's not that, I mean, he's not, he was also a teacher. I worked for the school board for 40 years, and he was so not that dude. And he's just a great, great dad, a great man. My parents are great, and I was great. I mean, yes, he was a preacher my whole life, and that's what I was raised under, but also I watched MTV all day and rolled around on the floor like I was Madonna singing about things. I had no idea what they were, but, you know, yeah, so you rolled around on the floor like Madonna. I did. I mean, I'm just saying that to like, like yeah, my dad's a preacher, but during the days I watched MTV all day and rolled around on the floor singing like a virgin and had absolutely no idea what that was and didn't care. I just wanted to roll around and be pretty like she was. Sure. Well, and so it sounds like your dad's like the rare, like liberal Southern Baptist, right? <laughs> Yeah, for sure. You know, and I don't really know if he is so rare. I, you know, I, I don't know. I think it maybe it seems rarer than it is. I, you know, I don't know. I don't know. But right. I mean, I, I, I totally get what you're saying. But yeah, I'm, 
I don't know. I feel like you only hear about the, the ones. And I, and I understand why people get upset about the ones you hear sometimes because it's well, kind of I, opposite of what Jesus would talk about. I'm, I'm also related to them. You know, like I've got some I've got some pretty hardcore religious relatives who are pretty conservative. Yeah, so there you go. <laughs> you know them. So, yeah, you're speaking from personal experience. I understand that. Yeah. Well, okay. So, but growing up, like, you know, it sounds like you were in some ways like like kind of in like a culturally white situation. I mean, liking Madonna, liking Pearl Jam. Um, like most of your friends you said were white? Yeah, for the most part. I mean, I was raised, I mean, my whole, most of all of my family is black, so I was raised, you know, in a culture, in, in a black family. But yeah, you know, my kids I was running around the neighborhood were, were white, and most of that, you know, I was watching MTV. My, my, I was raised on, you know, that early hip hop and stuff like that, but I also listened to, you know, uh, Cinderella and. Guns and Roses. Well, and, and Garth Garth Brooks, Guns, yeah, Guns and Roses. Now you're now you're talking to me. I, I'm, you know, that, uh, Guns and Roses. Every man, this is what I love about every dude that loves Guns and Roses. I don't think I've ever met a dude who doesn't love Guns and Roses or Led Zeppelin. They all go through that those phases. Yeah. I'm, I understand the phase. I'm not as huge. I mean, like, like Led Zeppelin, my my love has faded considerably over the years. Yeah. Like, I don't listen to it, but I I will always love Appetite for Destruction. Like that was such a yep. That was a big moment for me as a kid. That, I mean, it was for like so many people. It, it really was. My husband too. I mean, if you even mention it, he'll be like, "Wait, what? Guns and Roses?" So. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Wait well, a minute. Did someone say guns? Did someone say roses? Well, it's yeah. a, there's no. It's very masculine. It's very masculine and aggressive. And there's. It's hard to like. It's hard to kind of punch a hole in it. You know, like it's. It's a lot easier to say that you like. As a, as a guy, it's a lot easier to express that you liked Guns and Roses than to like admit that you like Coldplay or something. You know, like that's not as easy as a sell. <laughs> Yeah, so just leave it at Guns N' Roses, and everyone, every dude will be like, yeah, yeah, I heard yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, he's a little edgy. He's done some shit, you know, like, as opposed to, like, I like Coldplay, where you're, like, emasculating yourself just immediately. Yeah. But I do feel like most people like Coldplay, you know, like, especially most white people. Like, they have a, you know, Coldplay's sort of like, it's like, I feel like Coldplay, I've been thinking about this lately, because their new album is out, and, they've, you know, they're on the radio or whatever, but uh, I feel like the, there are certain bands um, and musical acts that sort of embed themselves in the culture in a certain way, and they go through these cycles. Yeah. They go through these cycles where it becomes like you know strangely popular to hate them slash secretly love them. And yeah, then, that's when you know you've made it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, Billy Joel. <laughs> I mean, Billy Joel sort of feels like that. Like I remember, like you know, once he did that, that Stormfront album and started wearing sunglasses at all times, it just became stupid. But then um, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you give it like twenty, you know, whatever, you know, twenty years have passed, and now like. He's sort of like this uh, beloved American icon or something. You know? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I think he's cozy. He makes people feel good. It's kind of, I feel the same way about Billy Joel that I do about like Springsteen and Tom Petty. It's like, oh, if I were ever away, far away and homesick for America, I would hear those songs and be like, oh, yeah. home. <laughs> yeah, Tom Petty Tom Petty's another one. I think Tom Petty might be my favorite. Like, uh, favorite, yeah. favorite like American rock person. Maybe. Yeah, I, feel yeah like I mean... I aspire. Yeah, if I, I, I'm in a bar, yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> I was just gonna say I aspired. I feel like he might be the most like calm human being on the planet. Like I, I, I aspire to that. I want to be as tranquil as Tom Petty. Well, it's like when we were in college, and I was at a bar, and, and they started playing Tom Petty, and I was talking to my husband, and I was like, you know what? Whenever I'm in a bar and they don't play Tom Petty, like I think I get kind of bummed out. Like whenever I go to any bar in the United States, like I want to hear a Tom Petty song. And yeah. if I don't, then why? What's what's happening? Like, what's the problem? Yeah, Something's this, going on. This place, this place sucks. Let's get out of here. <laughs> 
So, okay, so growing up in in Louisville, your dad's a preacher. It sounds like a happy family, you know? It sounds like you had a, a good situation there. And then, um, but like, you know, being raised and being in this kind of state of uh, cultural, um, you know, this mixed cultural thing or this cultural limbo coupled with like, you mm-hmm. know, like as you described it, your inherent uh, oddity. Like, did you ever have struggles? <laughs> did you ever have struggles? Did people ever give you a hard time or? Yeah, I mean, in middle school, I, I got, yeah, I mean, I don't really know how it was compared to other people's experiences, but yeah, I mean, it's the same old thing that I think a lot of black girls like me experience to where other black people who maybe don't understand you think that you're trying to be something you're not, which was always funny to me because I love being black. I love who I am, but why does that have anything to do with whether or not I wear a flannel? You know, so it never made any sense. It never made any sense to me. Like, what? like so I remember this one guy. Like they're, they're, they mean, mean they were giving you a hard time because they thought you were trying to be white? Yeah, basically. I mean, I remember I, I was on a dance team, and I was also a cheerleader, and I would wear bows in my hair. I would put my hair on a ponytail and wear bows in my hair, and we were on a field trip one time. I remember this black dude being like, why do you try to be white? And I, I was specifically like, how do I try to be white? And he was like, you wear a bow in your hair. And I'm like, on what planet does wanting to be a pretty girl and put a bow in my hair and match my cheerleading uniform make me – I didn't even understand it, but I, like I said, I don't even like arguing. What was the point of me talking to this eighth grader and trying to explain to him that – putting a bow in my hair doesn't make me quote unquote want to be white. So I would just be like, okay, whatever. What does he want? What does he want you to do? What does he, what does he want you to do? (laughs) I don't know. He just did not appreciate my outfit that day, which is fine. That's his choice. Right. (laughs) But you had, uh, it really bothered me when I was in middle school, but now when I look back on it, it's just like, what, you know, everybody has their deal. And that was kind of my deal. And he he probably liked you. That's what boys do. in the (laughs) June. That's what that's what men do still, but I mean that's what boys do in junior high especially. <laughs> Unfortunately, I mean yeah, it does kind of happen sometimes, doesn't it? Ugh, eye roll. Yeah. Oh well. You weren't Never. into it, but you met then you met your husband. No. You met your husband in high school. I did. He was a junior and I was a senior. We met in high school. And how did that go down? Like, did you guys go to the prom together and stuff? We did. We went to mine. We didn't go to his. Um, yeah, I mean, we used to share a locker, and it was very, it was very cute. I would never have thought that we'd stay together or anything like that at all. So I'm not, I'm definitely not. The, like, I'm a stay home mom. I'm not the same. Ho- I'm not a stay home Christian mom that would sit there and be like, and all little girls should marry their high school boyfriend. I mean, absolutely not. It was probably a terrible decision for everyone else, but it worked for us. And we've been together for 18 years, so I can't, I, I can't say it never worked, but. I do know that we're probably the freaks in that situation. That's okay too. So, did you know when you were in high school that like, I'm going to marry this guy? I mean, I guess a lot of girls. No, are... no, you didn't. No, not at all. I, I had another boyfriend. I said, well, <laughs> the first weekend we had a date. I had two other dates that weekend. I had an old boyfriend that was coming back in town, and I had a new-ish boyfriend. And I was just kind of testing my husband out too. I was just like, whatever, I'll go out with anybody. Uh, let's see what's going on. Like so. But you had some. <laughs> you, you were fielding <laughs> offers. <laughs> I was. So I was like, well, whatever, I'll hang out with whoever I want to hang out with and whoever I have the best time with, that's who I'll end up hanging out with for a little bit longer. That was the way I thought about it. And, and, and so we went on the date and I liked him this time. And then, um, I don't know. I was kind of I'm like, oh, we can date a little bit. No big deal. Don't, don't make this a big deal. I wasn't all concerned with boys as much. I thought they were cute, but you know, like we're not going to get married or anything was basically what I said. So, <laughs> and then we did. So wait, you told him that in high school we're not going to get married? Basically, I remember telling him, I told him, it was about some stupid thing, and I was like, trust me, you'll thank me. Your next girlfriend will really thank me for training you. And he was like, I'm never going to have another girlfriend. And I was like, 
okay, no, you like don't say that to me. That's really kind of weird. What do you mean you're never going to have another girlfriend? Yeah, like, that's like starting, we're not going to be together forever. That's yeah. like something that's, that's like something you hear in like a horror movie. You're never going to have it. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> like, no, really, and really, like, and I told him about it. Like, I was like, that's that's a little much. Like, you kind of need to calm down. And then, you know, I don't know. Four years later, we got married. So, but did he know? Like, I mean, does he ever told you? Like, I knew from the beginning. <laughs> I feel like he did always know that. I, I think he did, but well, good, good I thing. don't know why. Good thing one of you guys knew. <laughs> um, but so, yeah, maybe. And then did you guys split up to go to college, or did you guys did you go off to school? Or yeah, well, um, our high school is right across the street from where we went to college. So I just walked across the street, and he stayed over in high school, and that was the roughest year. So I can't really complain about that since we've been together for so long. That was our rough year. I broke out with him for like twenty four hours. It was Whoa. it was a rough night. What happened? <laughs> I just didn't want to date some dude in high school. Yeah, you're like, I'm come a, on, I'm man. a freshman. I'm across the street. <laughs> you can't come on this path. Well, yeah. You know? What what school was that? I went, I went to the University of Louisville. We both graduated from U of L. Oh, okay, okay. So I didn't realize your high school was right across from the street from U of L. So that's a that's a good. School. Yeah. Did you did you go in there thinking I'm going to become a writer? I'm interested in English, you know, uh, literature and. Um, I thought becoming a writer was sort of absurd, and no one really gets to do that. So let me just study as much English as I can, as much literature as I can, and then I'll teach. That was kind of what I was thinking, and then I started taking the, taking the teaching classes, and I don't know. I hated those. I was like, okay, well, I hate these. Let me just get my English degree, and then I'll see what happens. So I got my English degree, and then I got a job at the newspaper writing obituary. Okay. Great start, but actually yeah. kind of cool. I mean, kind of because you – in a way, it does teach you compression, does it not? Writing obituaries because you've got to kind of enca- or, I mean, encapsulate a life, or are you editing people's submissions, or like how does that actually go down? Yeah, well, uh, most of the time, yeah, we get they fill out a form, so it would be just like significant significant events or or something like that that the family wants to include, but they can get very expensive, so it depends on how much money the family wants to spend. So yeah, I mean, it is a you, you do. You, a little bit, you can get creative with trying to smush up their sororities or their gardening clubs or something like that. So there's a definite order that you have to follow. But you know, we would write it and then send it back to the family, and they would correct it and stuff like that. I actually loved writing obituaries and memorials. I got to meet with people who wanted to put a memorial in their paper in the paper for someone who had passed years ago and. I, I I really really loved the job. Why? You know, it, it's kind of weird when I think about it now. Um. Well, I've always been aware of my mortality, and I've always tried to take those things and use those things, those reminders, to make my life a little bit more precious. So I was pregnant with our first baby when I was working in obituaries. I mean, I was my husband had lost his job. I was pregnant, eight months pregnant, working on Christmas Day, writing obituaries. Whoa. So I'm like, how can I make this something okay? Because it's so not okay. How can <laughs> I make this something okay, you know? And so that's, my daughter's name is Ruby, but I would see, I would come across so many obituaries for women named Ruby, but they always died in like their 90s and had this really great life. So, I, you know, it did help me a lot with writing stories and thinking about people's lives. Because, I mean, when it's over, it's over. And if that's all you're going to get is nine wait, lines wait, 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 wait. No, we're going to go. We're gonna, are we going to go to heaven, see Jesus? <laughs> What's happening? <laughs> well, I mean, here on earth. Oh, you, know, okay. like, you know, yes, I 100% believe in heaven. But, but I mean, here on earth, when you're gone from this 
this world before you transition to the other, you know, if that's all you're going to get here on earth and as a comfort to the so, people who are left behind. And heaven is going to be like, like family reunion. Like what's going to happen? <laughs> I want to know. I, I don't know. Once again, I don't know, but I think that it's everything good and everything good that can ever be and nothing bad ever. So that can, I feel like it can look a lot of different ways to a lot of different people. I certainly wouldn't sit here and say that it looks one way or another, but but, uh, you know, I feel okay. like if you're going to go into this and believe in that, then you have to believe that it's good and it's the light and it's the right side, you know? Right. I'm, I'm always thinking like <laughs> cumulonimbus clouds and like an eternal family reunion, which could, could be trouble for me. I mean, like, you know, if I love my family, but a family reunion forever sounds hard. <laughs> yeah, that's what, that's what I think. It's like a lot of people are like, oh, are you going to sit around on clouds and it's going to be very boring? I'm like, if that's what you want, if it's boring, it's not. If you want to get up there and never have to see your family ever again, I think you are allowed that too. Like, I mean, just, that, that'll be your heaven, you know. I just want some quiet time every once in a while. That's all I'm saying. I need I need some me time. So you want to lock on your door. I think that I think that God can can, can do that. Yeah. One would one would hope. So um so you get your degree, you uh you're writing obituaries, you have a child. Uh when you're writing these obituaries for a living and working at this paper, um are you thinking to yourself, I'm doing this just to pay the bills? Are you thinking to yourself I, I want to have a career in journalism, or are you, are you thinking to yourself, I'm just trying to find my way to a time and place in which I can try to write a book? Yeah, the last thing you said. That's pretty much it. I was like, I'm going to have this baby, and then I'm going to be able to be home with this baby, because by that time, my, my husband had got another job, which was awesome. So I was able to have the baby and then stay home, and then once the baby was born, I was like, oh, one day, one day I'll be able to read and write again. I mean, I did not read or write anything until um, both of my children went to school. So, yes, I had the idea, but, I, I mean, I could not do anything until they both got into school. Yeah, it takes up a lot of time, doesn't it? Uh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I was like, just I was just on vacation. I don't think anyone can prepare you for that. I was just on vacation, and I brought all these books, and, like, I got home, and I was like, I read about three pages because I was chasing my daughter. <laughs> How old is your daughter? She's three. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, 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 no. You guys got there. You came back alive. That's plenty. Yeah, like, exactly. <laughs> All you really need to do. Reading a book is nice, but it's it's not going to happen. So it's okay. Okay, I feel better about that because there's a lot of guilt involved. It's like, am I? Are other people finding ways to get work done in this situation? Because like, I see people who have like three and four children, and like they're publishing. I'm like, what do you like? Do you have a? Do you have a live-in staff? Like, what's happening here? You know, it's like a completely crazy <laughs> scenario to me, but. Um, you know, it, yeah. it's, no a, it's a big, com it's a big commitment and a big life change. And, um, you know, you, like you said, you, you couldn't really get back to books and to writing books until what they got off to preschool. Um, well, pretty much until they were both in school all day. My son, who is going to turn eight in a couple of weeks, but even when he was in preschool, it was a couple of hours twice a week. So I had to wait until he was in kindergarten and then they were both in school all day. I mean, literally I had to wait until they were gone all day because I'm a stay home mom. So I, I can't do anything else. And, and people maybe don't realize that until you are a parent with a, with a child in the home all day, but doing something else is actually laughable. I mean, it's not going to happen. Right. Yeah. No, they want entertainment. You got to do stuff. Yep. <laughs> so, so, like, right now, my husband took them away so Mommy can be home alone for a little bit because I could not do this if they were here. Yeah, no, no. we're not going to have. Okay, so uh, did you ever resent? Were you ever resentful, or did you ever think to yourself, my God, like, it's over, it's not going to happen, I made this decision to be a mom? <laughs> um, I, w 
would have felt that way if my husband weren't so great. So since we're 50-50 co-parents, so I was sitting around with some other mothers yesterday, and they were very much like, oh, my husband, he never changed the diaper. He never did this. No. You know, they were bragging on my husband being very hands-on because he goes on a lot of field trips and stuff with the kids, which is awesome. But that's the only way we do this. So, you know, like he goes to work during the day, I'm here, and then after carpool and I come back home, if I need a couple hours to ride, he takes them out or I go out. And we always split that. If I didn't have that, I I can't imagine. I feel, you know, God bless single parents and people who are doing that because I don't have to do that. What about birthday parties? Who does those? You know what? I have never once had a birthday party for my child. And I don't mean we don't celebrate their birthdays, but we do not have birthday parties because it's a nightmare for me. So we just do something else really, really special for them, just our little family. And I've been able to get away with it for 10 years. Why? What, what's, what's, because I, I hate going to them. I don't like them. I'm like, I'm, an, I'm, an, I do too. I'm anti holidays. I don't like any holiday. Uh, because I, feel I don't like, really like holidays either. Oh my God. Okay, good. This and I, that surprises me a little bit because I'm figuring like Christmas is a big deal or something. But like anytime there's a day in which I am feel a, a certain pressure to perform or to like have like a performative happiness or extra specialness, uh, it bugs me. I wind up feeling like I, I, there's pressure and it's like, okay, I got to do this and we got to sing and like I'm supposed to be happier than I am on any other day. And it's a lot, you know, it's a lot. I don't like it. Yeah. Taking my children to birthday parties. So my husband usually does it. The thing that sucks about that is that it's always a mom. So sometimes I feel like I'm pressured to do it. I do not like doing it, especially when I'm I'm a highly sensitive person. I'm very, very easily overwhelmed. So then they always have them at these places where there's 50 billion lights, balloons popping, people dressed up like animals. I cannot be there. Like it, it is bad for my mental health. So really? I'll do anything to get out of it. And having something there is horrible so you know we'll, we'll go out of town sometimes and be like let's go to nashville we can go stay at a hotel you can throw at the pool or do anything else you want to do we have little times with our friends but only a couple of them you know what i mean like two or three or have a little slumber party with your best friend small, but small never groups. like have 20 people over yes so yes. okay or do you have anxiety stuff like do you get anxious in these situations it, it's really i mean it could be it could turn that way if I didn't know myself well, so well, so I just won't go. So, yes, if I were at Chuck E. Cheese and, you know, a summer Saturday at 2 p.m., yes. But I no way would I go there. You can't get me to go there. I'm not showing up. No, no one will see me there. So then I don't have to worry about it. If I were forced to be in a situation like that, yeah, but I just avoid it. Because why would I ever do something like that? Like, it doesn't even cross my mind. Why do people do that? I don't understand <laughs> Yeah, I guess they, they do it for their kids. But, you know, like, I mean, like, uh, temperamentally, I think some people have an easier time with that kind of social chaos than others. And, yeah, uh, I mean, my dad's like that. I mean, my dad, like, so we would always go up to New York City, um, for, and we would always go the weekend, I think it's on the weekend, when they have the Puerto Rican parade, where literally there's like a million people standing in the street. And my dad would always pick that weekend because he loved being in the middle of a crowd of a million people. Like, he loves that. If there's a crowd, my dad will walk to it. I will run a fast as I can, skateboard, ride, drive, motorbike, whatever, the other way. Is that how your mom is? Are you like your mom or something? <laughs> my mom is like, yeah, my mom would stay home all the time if she could. And I'm kind of like that. I have to fight against that sometimes. Well, I'm glad that we can do this over the phone. I wouldn't want to make you leave, you know, and, and get out of your house. <laughs> to go and talk to you to one person would be fine. But going to talk to one million people, no, no thanks. Yeah, no, I'm kind of, I get that. I'm kind of the same way. And I get like... The thing about it, too, is like if it's a loud situation, if it's like a loud party and it's hard to hear yourself think, or if there's lots and lots of people and you only 
and they're like it's hard to like actually have a substantive conversation with people uh that right. i find that exhausting and it uh, you know find that difficult but i i always i always marvel at people who seem to never stop socializing and seem to like draw like incredible energy from it like i can't i can't comprehend how people can be like that and and just like function like that like for a lifetime it seems like you would just burn out but apparently not yeah i mean i think so too it's hard for me to to understand but i just have to think that the same way I need time alone is the same way they need to be around people. So when my kids were younger, there'd be a lot of moms being like, we're going to the zoo today. Who wants to come? And I'm like, I would never want to go to the zoo with like another mom. Like I would go to the zoo all the time because we had a membership, but I would just go by myself because then we could go and look at the animals and I don't have to be like, so how have you been or whatever. But I've also, <laughs> you I like know, you. I like you. I like you. Lisa. You're like a, you're like a, an openly Christian literary writer who <laughs> sort of hates people. This is awesome. You know? <laughs> It really does wear me out, though. So it's like on my website, I'll be like, oh, I'm an empath. And, and when I try to explain that is in my whole life, people have always unloaded on me. I will meet a stranger or it could just be like a, a random person. People will. It, it's a positive thing. I feel like it's something they feel about me. They can tell me their secrets. People tell me these yeah, things sure. and people unload on me. But I don't know how to close that door. So when they're done, I have to go home and like sleep for a week. So it really does wear me out a different way when I go out. People just, yeah, I kind of get that. I mean, I guess I'm hosting a show where people talk to me and tell me stuff. But I think in life, too, like, uh, people have often told me things, you know. I don't know what the... Yeah. I don't want to overstate it. I don't want to make it sound like some sort of mystical thing. But I do get a lot of that. And I wonder if writers, if that's normal, if that's, is that a writer thing or is that just a certain people thing? Like, what, what is your understanding of an empath? Just somebody who feels other people's stuff really deeply and internalizes it? Is that right? I mean, that's how, that's how I think about it. And then also... Other people, for whatever reason or whatever it is about it, they feel it too. So I could be in a store and someone will come up to me and seriously touch my shoulder and just start talking to me. It's so normal for me. I'm the same as you. I don't want to make it seem like it's this magical thing. I don't know what it is. I just know that it happens to me a lot. So if I, could be, if I go to the bookstore and I'm reading a book, I have my computer in front of me, I have my earbuds in. Someone will still come down and sit down and talk to me. Okay, so give me so, an, give me an example. Like you're out shopping. Like this really happened to you? Like tell me where you were shopping when someone came up to you and touched your arm. What did they tell you? Um. Well, one time I was just in a store shopping with lots of other people, and this woman came up and touched my arm and was like, "You, you have to tell me how to make homemade mac and cheese." Like it's just so weird. Like I was like, I don't really have a good recipe. I was like, I was like, yeah, yeah, this lady sounds crazy. Like, go away. What are you talking about? <laughs> time I was walking with my children and a woman was like hey how are you and I was like hi and then she told me you know very sweetly but she was telling me all about her divorce and I mean detailed stuff that that happened and she talked to me for like 20 minutes and I guess because I'm not the kind of person that would be like okay bye and walk away I would have listened to her but and I don't know why she felt the need to tell me all this stuff and I want to be a blessing to people I want to listen to her and I try to get better about you know closing the gate sometimes I'll walk around with my gate open so then everyone unloads on me and i'm just now learning how to sometimes i just have to close them off i can't take on anyone's stuff well as soon as this inter- as soon as this conversation's over and i turn off the recorder i'm going to completely unload on you i want to i want to let you know <laughs> got a lot of really dark stuff that i need to work out and i figured that you would you could handle it i'll turn my recorder on and <laughs> yeah. it'll be my first episode of my podcast that would be, it'd be a huge it'd be a smash uh so Okay, so let's try to get back to tracing uh, this line uh, because I'm curious as to making the transition from 
um, you know, mom of two young kids and doing all that that entails to transitioning into a uh, working writer and, uh, you know, getting the reading done, getting the writing done and, and just getting into that mode because it is, it, it's sort of a rhythm. I think it is for most writers. And uh, if you haven't been doing it for a long time, it can be a challenge to sort of get yourself back into that. So did you have uh, a struggle? Was it a struggle or was it just pure joy? Like you got back into it. It was such a relief to be able to do it unimpeded. Yeah, it was kind of a, re- it, it was a relief for me. It wasn't really hard to get back into it. I, I kind of just was like, well, I, I would give myself a test to be like, well, let's see if I can, can write a story that I ever want to read again, or let's see if I can write a story and get to the end of it. And so it kind of started like that, like, oh, can I write a story and then show it to someone and then not vomit? So then it was slowly like all these little things I tried to to build up. So then I was like, well, let me try to write something that I would maybe want to submit, maybe if I got brave enough. So that's what I did and showed it to a couple a couple people, a couple of writer friends of mine. And they were like, you should definitely submit this. And then I did and it got accepted. And then I was kind of like, whoa, I felt like I'd gotten away with something. Like, I can't believe they took it. Suckers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sucker. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so did you have mentors? You, did, you didn't do the MFA thing? So you just, you did it, you kind of self, self-taught and went, you know, worked off of whatever yeah. you learned in undergrad? Yeah, I took a lot of creative writing classes. You can't really monitor in it, in it at U of L, but I took a lot of creative writing classes. And I wanted to get my MFA. I just can't afford it. I mean, you know, the first time I saw how much it cost, tears came to my eyes because I was like, okay, the kids are in school. I think I'm ready about this. I'm serious about it. I want to get my MFA. And I looked, and I mean, it, back then it cost sixty thousand dollars. And seriously, my eyes welled up with tears because I was like, stupidly enough, I don't have sixty thousand dollars. How are people doing this? And so then I was like, okay, well, there's no way possible for me to do this. So what else can I do? And since I'm just so stubborn, I was like, I'm going to read a lot of craft books. I'm going to read the writers I love. And then I'm just going to try to write stories. What you and, Wait, you're going to read a know, lot of cracked books? No, a lot of craft books. Oh, craft books. I was like, <laughs> I was like crack books. What's going on? I'm just going to read about crack cocaine and... <laughs> figure this out that's where i wanted to start but they were all checked out the library so i just got a bunch of craft books instead yes okay okay that makes sense craft books and and, uh yeah were there any that were particularly helpful like do you have like like certain books that you feel like were instrumental to you learning how to do this back then i was reading a lot of annie lamont and a lot of um natalie goldberg sure Right, um, writing, yeah, writing, writing, the writing the bones and bird by bird. That's what I was just going to say. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So those are kind of my, those are my writing Bibles back then. And I just would try to do the prompts and, and just try to, and I know that in bird by bird, it was like, what does your character have in their pockets? What's in their pockets? And so I would just journal and, and just make up these things and my, just you're like, try it. I you're just like wrote my, a lot. My character has crack in her pocket. Unbelievable. <laughs> So now where's she going to go? You've got to do something. With hey, it. I think it's a good beginning. So, um, okay, so you start to do this. You get uh, a story accepted by somebody. Was it an online place? I mean, I guess that's the one. Yeah, it was an online place called StoryCord, yeah. Okay, so you get accepted. That's always nice. And then um, did you start to, uh, like, you know, write uh, more prolifically at that point? Did it give you a boost of confidence? And I mean, it was really cool. I still was like, you know... Uh, can I do this again? So I, the editor there, her name is um, Sarah Knowles. She was like, hey, this is really great. 
I'm thinking of maybe trying to start this ebook thing. If you have a collection of stories, send it my way, and I'd love to consider it. So that gave me the boost to be like, okay, let me try to write, you know, 10 or 11 stories. My book is actually 27, but I was like, let me try to write 10 or 11 stories that sort of have a same feel, although they're not directly linked, all of them, but, you know, can I do this again and again and again and again? And so that would kind of got him, that got me started on wanting to put together a collection, something that I could possibly, you know, shop around. So what is your pro like, what does your process look like? You get up in the morning and do this, you get the kids off to school and then you work or, you know, how caffeinated do you have to be? Back then? Yeah. Back then when I was running it. Yeah. Um, yeah, kind of when I started, my son was maybe not in school full time then. So a lot of the stories I would write when he was underneath my computer desk and I would just be feeding him goldfish so I could get, you know, a page better. You know, like, like he's a puppy. He's very cute. So I'm like, oh, here, here you go. I'll move the ball over here and I'll have to fall over here and get it. You're like, fetch, fetch. So, yeah, that's kind of how I started. I'm not hardcore about a certain time of day or anything like that. I just write whenever I, whenever I can. Um, so not, whenever I can get it done, I'd get it done. Okay. Uh, but now it doesn't sound like you're too neurotic. You know, I guess maybe so. what's sort of the Chuck, the, Ch- <laughs> the Chuck E. Cheese thing in the birthday parties is where the neuroses manifest. But, I mean, it sounds like... <laughs> it is. You're not, but you're not, you're not... I can. Are you tortured at all by the work? Does it, I mean, does it elude you? Do you get frustrated? Did you ever think to yourself, like, I'm going to burn these pages, this thing, I'm going to delete this whole thing? <laughs> I mean, I've had those moments, but for the most part, no. I really love writing. I don't feel, I don't, I don't feel tortured. I don't feel tortured by it. I don't, I'm not saying I won't get to that point. And there are days where I'm like, look, this isn't working. I'm, I need to work on something else for a week. But I, I've been really lucky with being able to have ideas. And writing's always come easily for me. And I just love it, love it, love it. So, so I'm, I'm not at that point. I'm not at all saying I won't one day, but I'm not right now. So do you use these prompts still or do you use these books to get you started? Do you start with a title, a sentence, a character? I start by making notes on my iPhone now. So if I see something or see something out, or uh, it'll be a word. A lot of times it's just a word or the way a song makes me feel. It's real big on like feeling. So if we're in a diner and it's starting to rain outside, I'll be like, oh, I like how this makes me feel. You know, so I'll try to keep that feeling going. So it's something that's kind of hard for me to explain, but it usually starts with this feeling I have. How can I capture this feeling on the page and then the character? Then I have characters and then I'm like, okay, well, now I've got to find them something to do. And then how much revising do you, do you typically do with a story? Like, they, do you sit there and have to noodle with them forever? Or do they do a lot of them come out pretty whole? I, I mean, I do a lot of revising. I'll print it out, and then it will start crazy red everywhere. And then, you know, by the time I'm to the eighth revision, it'll be less, less and less red. But, um, I mean, I'm probably in between there. I don't, I don't pick it apart too much, but I do want to fight for everything. And, and I, I do find myself getting better at that it, used to take me a lot longer now I'm, I'm, I'm quicker i think i can do it yeah I find, a little bit faster I, now. I, I, sometimes, I mean i guess it can work any which way but i always find or i often find personally that the, the writing that comes out of me the quickest is often the best um yeah i mean not that i guess you know longer form stuff you inevitably have to revise but if i start to fixate and think about it and analyze it and pick it apart it's usually a bad sign it's like not coming out <laughs> You know, if it's not coming yeah. out quickly, if it's not coming out quickly in some sort of rush, it's typically not as inspired or something. Yeah, or maybe you know, I don't know if you're like me in that, but maybe it, you're just, you know, sometimes I feel like I'm thinking about it too much, and then I'm like, why am I thinking about it so much? And so then I want to do all my thinking before I sit down. So by the time I actually sit down and start typing, 
you know, it is done. Like I, you know, I like by the time I actually start typing, I'm I'm ready. I'm ready to start typing. You so know, you, but so you can so, hold, you can hold like a you can hold a story in your head and just kind of play with it and. Yeah, that's how. I, I mean, that's how I've done it. That's what's worked for me, and so if it ain't broke. Yeah, well, no, I mean, my buddy Ben uh, Laurie, who's been on this show, like. He just mm-hmm. like starts with a sentence and writes the writes a draft in a straight shot. I mean, his stories are really short, but um, that's, that seems like sort of an enviable way. I, and I know he would argue that it takes forever to revise and get them right, and that they can drive him crazy. But um, you know, maybe I should try that at some point. Just sit down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is good to try other just, other stuff. For yeah, sure. just see like have something fly. Like, you know, he just like sees a moose. He writes these like fabulous uh, short stories. And, <laughs> Like season. I just love the way you said that. Yeah. Well, no, yeah, it's, it's not even it's not even uh, untrue. He writes about like an, like you know anthrop- uh, anthropomorphized animals or whatever you know who talk and do. Yeah. So uh, anyhow, uh, when you were uh, writing this uh, book and when you were working on you know your kind of your apprentice years and then getting into publication, um, were there particular writers that you were leaning on, uh, writers of fiction that you found particularly influential? I really, I don't know, every, well, probably every person, not just every woman, probably says Lori Moore when they're on your show, <laughs> but for sure. Not just, I mean, women, I not just women, not just women, I feel like. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly, like everyone. Yeah, I really just loved her. I, I feel like Lori Moore writes whatever the F she wants, and so that's what I love and admire about her. Like, it seems that way. I don't know if it's true, but it just seems like no one's telling her what to write. So I would, you know, I really liked it. I really liked that about her. I also really like Mary Gayskill. Um, um, and then I started reading a lot of the. That's how I found Roxane Gay and a lot of other people like that online. I was, I wanted to read the best people who were publishing online too. That's a whole. Um, so then a whole, I started reading a lot of those magazines. It really is a whole world, the online thing. Yeah. You know, and like there seems to be some sort of distinction. Like Lori Moore, she's not uh, dicking around online, and I, and you know, I no. But but there are plenty of good, you know really good writers who live online and uh, you know make hay with it or they, I don't know it's a weird it's a weird line of demarcation and I don't even know if that's the right yeah. way to put it but it's like what's is it just a generational difference is it some sort of aesthetic or um, you know what, what's the not a moral choice but you know what I'm saying like what is it that distinguishes <laughs> yeah. what is it that distinguishes a writer who uh, would you know who's who's publishing who's actually having publication success. Who opts to you know to be online and participate online versus the writer who just says, uh, you know, no thanks to all of it. Do you have any you know, your thoughts yeah. about that? I don't know. I feel like it's changing. Like I, I, I feel like a handful of years ago it was kind of like, oh, people who publish online are just people who can't get books or, or can't do something else. But I feel like the respectability of online magazines and stuff like that, especially readability and readership, is you know just insane the amount of people who would read your story online than if it was published in some obscure, although it could be some amazing, hard to get into magazine, but three people read it as opposed to, you know, 10,000. So I feel like that kind of stuff has changed, but, you know, I was lucky enough to go to dinner with Roxanne um, one night and we were talking about all this kind of stuff and she was like, don't play the online game. And I'll always remember that because it's true. Like, I feel like there is kind of an online game that people play and I've always tried really hard not to play it and I don't play it. Wait, wait, what is it? What what is the online game? 
I feel like it can mean different things to different people, but to me it means trying to get published in every cool new magazine, trying to have something edgy and new and cool that's in front of everybody for the week. But I want to be writing, you know, if the Lord blesses me with living a long life, I want to be writing books until I'm an old lady. I don't want to be the hot new thing online this week. I'm not trying to write some edgy poem or edgy story for, for this week. And my stuff is not edgy at all. It's, you know, I've been called sentimental, which didn't hurt my feelings at all. I write, I mean, I write about men and women. If some people could call it chick lit, which doesn't offend me, or women's fiction, and neither does romance. That doesn't offend me either. There is a lot of bad stuff that's associated with romance novels, but my stories are romantic. So I'm not, they're not edgy or anything like that at all. I'm not trying to be something I'm not. I write the stories I want to write. If people want to read them, that's awesome. If they don't, that's okay too. Well, but some like some women, I think, bristle at like we got the label women's fiction or, you know, they don't want to be boxed in or whatever, but that doesn't bother you. No, it doesn't bother me at all. I love being a woman. I love women. I love writing women's fiction. It's okay. I mean, you know, it's okay. It would be okay to me if a man was like, I can't really connect with it. I have not found that, but that would be okay, too. I mean, you can't please everybody, and that's all right. Everybody likes what they like. I know what I do. You know, I know I do. Yeah. But, I mean, yeah, in like chiclet as a term, I think some people, like, they think it's, like, reductive or demeaning or whatever but you know i I don't think i think that people get increasingly online and i think maybe actually i don't think the online thing has much to do with it other than providing like a a sharper lens through which to see people's behavior you know publicly because people use yeah i agree with you they use comment boards to complain or whatever but it's like man everybody is so easily offended it seems like yeah i heard you talking about that yeah i heard you talking about that the other day i can't deal (laughs) i'm kind of i mean and then you see like like you see somebody you know, something happens and it can be legitimately, you know, it can be legitimately uh, shitty. Like somebody can say something mean or whatever. And then, but then you just see like the backlash that happens online. And it's like, it reminds me of like piranhas, you know, like just like this school of fish. <laughs> yeah. Everybody's getting their bite, you know? And it's like, holy cow. Yeah. Like, I just, you know, I think like part of me is like, I always say, I think it's an energy issue. Like, I don't know if I have the energy for that. <laughs> I'm just too- No, I, uh, Brad, I mean, I'm serious. I'm 100% with you. That's why, I mean, I made a choice a long time ago in my social media life. I never, ever comment on, like, social issues. And I, and, I, and I've even been like, oh, I, don't, I definitely don't want to come across like I don't care about the latest sh- school shooting because I cry over those things. I mean, so I... And, and and not that I don't care about feminism, it's not that I don't care about these issues that people talk about all the time, but the energy it would take for me to jump into every conversation and to feel like I'm making a point or to try to show that I'm smarter or know something about something. I'm not, I'm so economical with my energy. I'm not willing to spend the energy on that. So I just decided I'm not going to do it at all at any time with social media. Okay. And I'm glad I made that a lot. You know, I just made that decision a long time ago. That's a, yeah. Running the risk of maybe coming off as, you know, how in the world could she not mention this latest huge thing that happened? But I'm like, then I feel like I'd have to comment on everything. And, well, and, I, and, and nobody needs way, to hear from me. Well, yeah, by the way, everyone else is already talking about it. That's how I feel. It's like, what, what am I, <laughs> exactly. I going to add to this? I got nothing to say that anyone, like, there's not like six million people already saying. Like, And, and then it feels like, to me, um, you know, I think there's an ambulance chasing aspect to it when it comes to the online stuff. And, like, racing to comment on, like, whatever is the scandal of the day. Yeah. Because then you're just and there is one. Oh, there is one every day. Yeah, there is one every day. And so it's like you're chasing clicks at that point. And that to me, that to me, just feels sort of like ugh, that's the online game to me. It's like, oh, okay, what's the scandal it this is. week? Let me write my five thousand word essay about it, and like try to use this scandal to somehow like magnify uh, my own interests or get everybody to look at me, you know. And 
I don't know. I, it, like, like this is like this is actually a quandary for me because I think about you know obviously we need journalism and commentary is a good thing like smart commentary like I like to read smart commentary, right. but there's a part of me, me that too. like that when I try to like digest the the enormity of what is online and when something big happens and you can put big in quotes because if it's like a literary scandal then it's obviously big only in the context of a very small pond but uh, <laughs> right. you know like uh, like I, I find myself thinking like. Uh, the, the people need to be quiet. <laughs> There's too many. <laughs> is, why does everybody? Exactly. Why does everybody feel the need to like pipe up and like have an assessment of like, I don't know. You just go to any news site and you see these people who are writing these articles, and I get, I guess they're paid to sort of like produce copy, but yeah, I, I don't know. It just to me, it seems like uh, draining. Well, and that would be bad. It is. It is to me personally. I know for some people it's not because some people are really energized by debate, but then you have someone who's writing the commentary on that, and then always the next day there's someone who's writing a commentary on the commentary, and then you have to write a response. I mean, if you're already in this, they got this wrong, they spelled this wrong, and then it goes on and on, and like, I know they feel so strongly about these things, and I realize it, but, and I feel strongly about a lot of things too, but I try not to just demonize someone who thinks differently than me, for one. I try really hard. I'm not saying it's always easy, but I try really hard to not demonize someone for having a different opinion. And then also, it just wears me out. I'd just rather be playing Tony Hawk, so I'll just play Tony Hawk instead. Wait, playing what? Tony Hawk Pro Skater. Oh, is it a video? History. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Look at you. Uh, so, but like feminism, that sort of thing, like, do you identify with that stuff? I do. I mean, I identify with a lot of it. You know, I'm... I'm I'm consider myself a feminist. I am. I'm raising, I'm raising a little feminist in this house, but I, I'm not going to write about it every day. I mean, I'm trying to what be is, about that life. Sure. What, is it, what but, does it mean? Well, one example is we were just on vacation and I, I was standing in this long checkout line at the Publix because everyone got there at the beach on Saturday. So there are a million people in line waiting to get food. And, and so there was a rack of magazines. I was with my, my son and my daughter. My daughter's 10. And there was Katy Perry, and there were all these girls in front of all these magazines, these talented, beautiful women, in my opinion, completely half-naked, which is their choice and their right. But I was talking to my daughter, and I was like, do you see how every man here who's very beautiful and talented is dressed from head to toe and covering, literally from his neck down to his ankles? And you see how every woman here at least has to have her boobs out or her butt out or her tummy out. What do you think about that? So I'll ask my daughter, like... We think Katy Perry is beautiful and talented. Wouldn't she be just as beautiful if she were wearing something else? It's her choice to wear whatever she wants. But a lot of these magazines want these women to be half naked on the cover so they can sell more magazines, and that's all. So I was talking to some other moms about that, and they were like, wow, that's really great for you to talk to her about that stuff. But it comes naturally for me. We talk about that. So we talk about commercials. We talk, I watch a lot of sports. I love baseball. I love all sports. But I'll be like, you see how they cater to men in these commercials. There's always a beautiful woman. You know, and then some big fat dude sit on the couch and a beautiful woman next to him. That's what, it's pretty much every commercial you've ever seen. But, but we talk about it. You know, so for me, that's, that's one way we do. We talk about that stuff to both my son and my daughter. We talk about the way that the media portrays women. And, you know, I try to talk about those things at an age-appropriate level for sure whenever I'm, you know, have the opportunity. Yeah, and no, that's tricky because, like, you want to, like, talk about it, and you want, but you don't want to freak them out. Like, I, you know, I'm a, I don't no, know. not at all. I gotta figure. I gotta talk to my. I'm gonna, I think I'm gonna outsource that to my wife. Let, let her do that. I'll. I'll just. <laughs> I get so confused by it all because, like, I think too. Like, I have like this denial thing, or I'm just like, because I, because I, I, I personally don't uh, 
genderize things or you know have I have I love women you know what I'm saying like in mm-hmm. I know I'm not a perfect guy. I'm sure I've said things that would offend certain feminists at some point or another, but I, cause I'm not politically, so I'm sure. not, I'm not, politi- I'm <laughs> so not, poli- I'm, yeah, I'm not politically correct either. I, political correctness and the elevation of sensitivity over truth. And you know, that whole thing drives me nuts. And I think that like, yeah. we all sort of need to cut each other some slack and, you know, allow each other to m- make some rhetorical mistakes, you know, without having like this piranha feeding frenzy, uh, or whatever, you know, metaphor you want to use. So, um, but so I don't know. I think there's a part of me that can sort of just be like, oh, if I just do nothing and I'm just myself, it'll be fine. But I don't think that's necessarily the answer either. You do have to like identify when the line has been crossed, and you do have to find ways to articulate it and 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 stand up and speak out against it. You know, when in, in, yeah. in, in whatever context, whether it's a gender thing or it's a racial yeah. thing or whatever, you know. For sure, and that's how I try to happen. You know, that's how it usually happens here. If it's a commercial about some guy being like, oh. The wife just likes to shop all the time, you know. <laughs> that's an example. I hate to shop. Women be shopping. Well, not me. I hate it. Yeah. So you know, I will try to highlight those things to my kids. Or, or like sports. It'll be like, oh, women don't know anything about sports. I used to tone it down how much I know about sports and about baseball so that men wouldn't feel like I knew a little too much, you know. But now they're I'm like, like no. Yeah, they're, like, they're like, they're like, they're so. like, black, black women don't like country music. You're like, I got, I got friends in low places. What's up? <laughs> walk off that's there right just drop the microphone and walk that's it um so do you have i mean you're, you're such a uh seem like such a nice uh sunny person like do you have i mean and i guess like i, I would go you're back to, i would go back to chuck e cheese i guess that's where your dark side comes out but like do you have a dark side have you had any like really dark stuff happen to you that uh you you write from or you feel you know you find um I, you know, inspiration is not the right word, but I think a lot of artists work from pain of some kind. Like, do you have anything like that going on? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I've definitely had some really dark, sad stuff happen to me. I've, I've, I've definitely, you know, I've, you know, both of my my parents' parents died early, and and my mom had a brother who died, and and so it's it's like, yeah, I. I for sure don't want to come off like <laughs> just like oh I'm smiling all the time and then I'm going to start wielding an axe and start <laughs> murdering, murdering people I try to do the best I can everybody you know I feel like I'm pretty normal and I have dark days and I have days where things suck and you know I could get really really angry if someone's texting and driving and almost kills me and and you know this you know I'm very human when it comes to those things I just try to stay on the sunny side as, as much as I can. I feel like we only get a little bit of a time here. And so I'm not going to try to stay in that dark space. Because I'm trying to fight. But before we know, it. before we know it, some other young aspiring author is going to be writing our obituary. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Things are going just fine. <laughs> Until that, that up and comer is writing my freaking obituary. And then it's all over. <laughs> no. Well, I uh, I certainly congratulate you on your success with the publication of your book, and uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Just thanks for having me, and I love talking to you. I think that you're great. I really appreciate it. All right, there you go. That's Lisa Cross-Smith. What a delight. Her story collection is called Every Kiss A War. It's available now from Mojave River Press. You can find her online at Lisa Cross-Smith. Dot com. She's on the Twitter where her handle is at Lisa Cross Smith, and I believe she's on the Facebook too. Thanks to Kill Rockstars as usual for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Uh, don't forget to go get the app 
Go get that app, the official Other People app. It's out there now. It's free. Wherever apps are available, you download it to your device, and then you can stream. Uh, well, you can sign up for premium right there within the app, and that means you can stream every single episode, all uh, all 300, nearly 300. So go get that app. Uh, what else? Idealism. Fantasies of a Utopia. I want to live on a commune. I have friends who are good at this. That's the thing. I have friends, they're very good at cultivating groups of friends. They like to be social. They feed on it. It's a pleasure for them. It's easy. It's effortless, almost. They make it look effortless. They like having people over, hosting dinner parties. I think these people are in the minority. And I also think they tend to uh, have resources. You know, I'm not saying they're all super wealthy, but I am saying that they're comfortable, usually. They have a house where they can host things. They have space. They have money for babysitters and so on. They have help. They have time to plan. That's the thing. They're just the time. The, the, the time resources. I don't have time. I barely have time to sleep, it feels like. Which begs the question, am I just bad with time? Am I a horrible time manager? And are they, uh, by contrast, very good with time? Please remember that André Chenier had published only two poems when he was guillotined and that Robert Louis Stevenson was known to his friends as Lou Stevenson. That's it for today. Thanks again to Lisa Cross-Smith. Go get her book. Support an indie press. Support an author. Rolling out her debut story collection. Uh, Thanks to everyone listening. I appreciate it. I shall return. Uh, I am now going to go out and try to build a community. I am now going to go out and try to foster connectivity because uh, it's important. That's what I'm doing here, right? But the thing is, this is cyber connectivity. This is digital. It's virtual. It's at a remove. Even though it's better than like social media. So eventually when I have money, I'm going to buy thousands of acres of land and I'm going to create a city of writers and other artists. Would that be weird? That would be a disaster. (laughs) Forget I said that. Don't take selfies, okay? Just stop with the fucking selfies. (laughs) 